Call 1-888-FARMERS to switch and you could save an average of $470 on your auto insurance. That's a lot of money in just a few minutes. With savings like that, you could be lounging on an impractical amount of ornate and overpriced throw pillows you bought for your couch. But you won't because you're better with money than that. That's why you're calling us in the first place. Call 1-888-FARMERS to get a quote today. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Based on average nationwide annual savings survey data, July to December 2020. Underwritten by Farmers, Trucker, Fire Insurance, Exchanges, or Affiliate. Products not available in every state. Here's three great reasons to get the new Samsung Galaxy S21 5G at T-Mobile. One, it's free for both current and new customers when you trade in an eligible device. Two, T-Mobile's the leader in 5G coverage. So, three, you can unleash 5G speeds in more places with your new phone. Get the new Galaxy S21 free at T-Mobile, the leader in 5G coverage. Phone via 24 monthly bill credits plus tax. If you cancel credit, stop and balance on required finance agreement may be due. Contact us. Qualifying credit and consumer plan required. See details at T-Mobile.com. You're listening to the Heroes Podcast Network. Loved one, and welcome back to another episode of Kaiju Curry House. I am joined by my regular co-hosts, Paul and Joe, and our special guest, folklorist, writer, and translator, Mr. Zach Davison. Say hello, everyone. Hi there. Hello. Okay, let's start ourselves off nice and quick. Joe, what have Kaiju been up to lately? Right. So I've been spending more time than usual indoors. So I took the fabulous opportunity to rewatch the Valley of Guangi or Guangi. Um, and it was a great time. And I think that cowboys and dinosaurs are an, un- an underutilized concept in today's cinema and comic world. I think they could use a lot more media interaction. So here's my two cents. It's the best story about a blue dinosaur you'll ever see. What, is, is that literally it? Well, you know, like we recorded yesterday, so. <laughs> I've been up to that much more since then. Yeah, um, that's <laughs> all, folks. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're Kaiju Curry House. Okay, um, good grief. Paul, what have Kaiju been up to? Um, following on from our episode with Steve Wang, I decided to go and watch The Giver, Dark Hero, which was a old favourite of mine. It's got... Um, it's like an adult Power Rangers, basically, is, is the best way to describe it. So, Alja perhaps made me think it was a better film than it was. And looking back at it now, I can see a few of its flaws, but it is still really good fun. Uh, it's based on the manga. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in a nutshell, a, a guy comes across this alien mechanism called a Giver unit, accidentally sets it off, and it gives him armor like Iron Man. And he fights um, the evil corporation known as Kronos, who turn humans into creatures. So that, that's basically how they're explaining werewolves and stuff, that they're actually the creatures. And so um, it's a great film if you can look past the like the corny acting and dialogue. But... As as someone who who watched it as a not as a kid as a teenager I should say because it was it's quite gruesome at times it's it's really good fun so I definitely recommend that. Um, other than that, I also just wanted to touch on that new Project GG 
game that um, Platinum Games are working on. I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with Platinum Games, but they did um, Bayonetta and Vanquish, um, Transformers Devastation, and some of it. They're basically they're really good at doing fast action fighting games, and they've just revealed a new game that's kaiju-based, where it looks like you're going to play as something similar to Ultraman, fighting monsters. There's just a short teaser trailer on YouTube. Um, go check it out. It's Project GG. I don't know when it's coming out. It probably won't be this year, but it looks good fun. Um, you know, who doesn't want to fight mm-hmm. giant monsters? So that's all for me. So is Giver, would you say, would you say, well, I was, I was going to ask, would you say that Giver is uh, a more adult version of the last Starfighter? The last Starfighter? Or, or Star Kid. I think that that's what it was. Anybody? Anybody? It was a name. I remember I last... What was I've never heard of it, so someone else jump in. Zach? I mean, I know The Last Starfighter really well, but I don't know the other one you were talking yeah. about. Yeah. Right. So, Giver. Giver. Okay, Giver. So, yeah. forgive me, but like, there was a movie that came out, I want to say sometime in the 90s, and it was a kid that found like a biomechanical alien suit, turned him into more or less like this superhuman, like, you know, that's the guy. Okay, that. Are, that... That's definitely not The Last Starfighter. No. The Last Starfighter is a movie that came out in the 80s. Uh, he finds an arcade machine and he masters it. And when you win the level, you find out the arcade machine is actually a recruitment yeah. for star pilots. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, That's a cool film. But yeah, nothing to do with Guyver. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's two <laughs> Guyver right, films. So I'm, I'm, looking up, I'm looking up Star Kid. And you see, like the thing is, is it is a movie. However, okay. um, Ooh. It was renamed a couple of times. I saw at least three names for it in the video rental stores because mm. the thing is they kept the same art for the cover, but they kept giving That's it a weird, different weird. name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hoping yeah, hoping someone would buy it. Movies, so it didn't, yeah, 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 yeah. They didn't sell well. Yeah, but... There was a skateboard movie called Gleaming the Cube that was renamed, I think, four or five different times too. Okay. Yeah, because Guy, the first Guy film was originally called Mutronics and then they changed it to The Guyver. But this is... The sequel, Guy of a Dark Hero. Um, it's got um, David Hayter in it, for anyone that likes Metal Gear Solid. And um, Guy of a Dark Hero was directed, wasn't it? It was directed and written by Steve Wang. He also did the special effects. I mean, it's like it's pretty much his yeah. baby. Who we recently had on as a guest, yes. hence why kind of that, that sparked the interest. Because my experience of Guy is quite limited. I've watched the anime, which, which was very cheesy. Um Right, okay, which one? Um, <laughs> right, you see, I, I, I'm not going to even, like, sort of blag it and act like I know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I, I just saw, I, I got a box set off my cousin. He was like, check this shit out. And I'm like, okay, what is it? And he's like, it's Giver. It's it's an anime. I'm like, okay. And he's like, oh, it's great, but it's not very gory. What? I'm like, okay, is that a bad thing that it's very not very gory. gory? He's like, well... Well, the anime that I had wasn't. It was a 12, um, and it was a lot tamer, whereas Giver and Giver Dark Hero, they're quite bloodthirsty. Yeah. I mean, I've, I'm sure it's known as like an ultra-violent cartoon. I saw in the intro he just shoots someone's eyes out. It's not... <laughs> It's not a child yeah, friendly. I, I know that the man, the manga, the manga is really bloodthirsty, but I feel like we could actually do an episode just about. We probably could, to be fair, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, and it had that um, that awful Mark Hamill movie, correct? Yes, yeah, that was the first one. Yes, <laughs> yes. 
Yeah. Yeah, there you go. That's so the one that got renamed. Yeah. I do. I mean, I watched Skyver back in the, I don't know, I would only say the early 90s is probably the last time I've seen Skyver. So it's been a while. Yeah. May I ask how old you are, Zach? <laughs> I am 47. Okay, right. So I wasn't sure because on your on your bio on your website it just says born in, and then it kind of gives the month and date. It's like ah, crafty. Oh, does it? Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. I wasn't. No, it okay. doesn't have the year. And I'm like, all right, it's ah. a secret. What age he is? Um, someone else asked me, Alex, the question. Good sir, what have kaiju been what up to? Kaiju been up yeah. to? Yeah. Oh, oh, <laughs> Zach, you joined in. That was good. We've, we've got a guest that already understands the pun. This is amazing. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Well, thank you, Zach, and thank you, Joe, both of you. Um, well, given the circumstances at the moment with coronavirus locking people in their homes effectively, when I have not been needed out of schools, I've kind of been stuck indoors, and I've been treating it as an opportunity to do lots and lots of research into, you know, into our fandom and into the genre so that I can kind of look up more guests and look up more subject matter. And um, Gargantua cast, who I have to give a shout out to, who are really worthwhile looking into, they are going to be doing an episode on humanoids of the deep. And I thought, where have I heard that before? Oh my (laughs) lord, I've brought that up before. You have. (laughs) And then I remember Joe saying about how the trailer for humanoids from the deep is so unwholesome (laughs) that it's got the same shot of this bare-chested woman getting attacked by a monster twice in one trailer as if it's like, Uh in case you hadn't noticed, this film has boobs later on. In case you hadn't noticed, this film has boobs. And I think you said to me, Joe, that there is not much moral fibre to this film. And there is not much sort of substance to it, but nevertheless, it is technically a kaiju movie, okay. sort of. So, yeah. again, to, for those of us who, who don't want to go necessarily that far back into our library, I watched this film with a good friend of mine, John, and it was actually uh, gearing up to go to G-Fest, and we were at his place, and we decided to go and rent some videos. So what we got was Carnosaur, which is a gem, and then uh, we decided, um, all right, we're going to watch this. And then later, maybe we'll watch some Avatar The Last Airbender because it's an awesome show. So we watched Carnosaur, and that was just great for what it is. That is a sweet piece of film. Uh, dinosaurs eat, hi- eat hippies. Um, there's a disease outbreak. And um, if you are infected with with this disease, you might become pregnant with a dinosaur. Who knows? I mean, like this is <laughs> these are the things that happen in this film. However, it had really decent practical effects. So there we go. However, Humanoids from the Deep was the trailer on that film. Soon the world will awake to a terrifying riptide of humanoids from the deep. We think we know where these things come from, but we have no idea how many there are. And wow, like after we saw that, we had to see Humanoids from the Deep. So the second night, we went back to said video rental store, got Humanoids from the Deep, and we watched it. And wow, wow, what a great film. Um, so the- Have you seen it, Zach? I've not, I've not, but I mean, I want to now. I think it's on know. Netflix, but... I... Well, well, my main question is, are there boobs in it? Because I wasn't okay, quite the sure. Actual, I was the getting trailer. to this, I was getting <laughs> to this. So the best okay. scene in the film is actually when that happens. But it's not, <laughs> okay. it's not for the boobs. Uh, 
Uh-huh. It's because the guy who is seducing this woman, the guy that is taking her shirt off and everything, he's doing it as a ventriloquist, and he has his puppet out. And the way, and the way he does this, and the, no, and the way he does this is, do you want to see my Woody? And she's like, yeah. So he brings out the puppet. Oh my god, that is terrible. And you know what? So. I, John and I are a couple of quote unquote lemonades in at this point, and we decided that this was yeah. one of the best scenes ever filmed. It's enough to scare the hell out of me. Oh my god. But yeah, you know, humanoids yeah. from the deep. Great film. So oh. scrolling through um, Twitter, I saw that Gigantua cast are going to be covering hum- humanoids from the deep. And then immediately, you know, scrolls of comments of people going, yeah, this film. And other people going, no, <laughs> no, not that film. Why are you looking at it? I understand both of... sides of that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's divisive. So the thing is that despite it having a female director, Barbara Peters, it has been described as one of the most misogynistic and grossly exploitative films of the 80s because it it feels and looks very much like you know a pervy grimy bloke has directed some kind of b-movie drive-in theater you um, can be the director and not the writer just so you know Mm. because it's produced by roger corman who has done absolutely loads of stuff and here's where there is a dark element to it far darker than the film itself was after it was filmed he basically edited in much later on loads and loads of really rapey elements to it without kind of the director knowing so there's kind of there's lots of conflicts of interest about how the movie goes yeah that was the same thing they did with uh, the film caligula Yes, I'm so glad that Caligula's featured in this episode. Yeah, Try- yeah, they they filmed it with all these top notch actors who thought they were filming one one type of movie, and then That's after right. the the director saw it, he's like, no, 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 and so they went in and edited in a bunch of hardcore pornography that the main cast was yeah, never yeah, aware yeah. was ever going to be in there. Yeah, Abs- absolutely, because Helen Mirren's in that. And, yeah, oh, uh, Helen Mirren, Peter O'Toole. Um, it's nothing but top notch actors. Is it a good movie? And then at the end of it. Um, What's oh, that? Is it a good movie? So, uh, so does that bring it? No. Okay, there we go. Because it is I, a very interesting. Interesting. Movie. I don't okay. know that I would throw good. <laughs> so, as a birthday present, Matthew Gregg, who we also had on as a guest once, he got me the, or he's pre-ordered rather, the Criterion Collection of Caligula. And it's got like five cuts in, and it's like I don't, oh, wow. need, I don't, I don't need to see Caligula that many times. <laughs> I've already seen it, but yeah, yeah, there is the there is the similar kind of issue there with kind of humanoids from the deep, where there's a film, and then mm-hmm. afterwards Penthouse were called. It's like right, okay, come on, bring them all in, everyone. No, no, yes, even her, bring her in, everyone. <laughs> we want a whole boatload of them. And mm-hmm. Peter O'Toole and Helen Mirren are like, what? That wasn't in the film. Well, it is now. It is now. Yeah. So- <laughs> I'm sorry if, like, I spoil this for a bunch of people, but one of the main plot points, one of the main plot points from Humanoids of the Deep is that these fish people impregnate women with baby fish people. And they come out and sort of like, and they come out in sort of like an alien-esque chestburster, albeit belly burster sort of way. And they remade the movie later on, and that, that same element is still there. So... How you can make that movie without it being, you know, that? I mean, that was a main plot point. That's that's how you get the "Here We Go Again" ending at at the end. 
Sorry, folks. There's, there's a here we go again ending. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're not watching it for the plot, so I don't feel so bad getting spoilers. <laughs> no, 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 no. But like on paper, when you kind of read out the description, Humanoids from the Deep, I mean, it's got Doug McClure in, who we all love yeah. for uh, Warlords of Atlantis. You love it for and... Warlords of Atlantis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right, all right. I feel attacked now, but uh, Doug McClure is in some classic Jules Verne's films, and you know, I think yeah, I like Doug McClure films. It's got monsters in. Yes, I like that. Okay, and then it's eighties. I like eighties films, and then you read the actual deeper content. You're like, oh, okay. Oh dear. Um, can we can we all ask together the question to Zach? Three, yeah. two, one. What have what Kaiju been up to, Zach? Alex, that you was rubbish. terrible to do that Alex, in Alex, you came up you with could... this idea and then you didn't talk. <laughs> all right, all right. I all right, know, right, I noticed right, that. Right, yeah. Try, try to do again, that one okay. again. Yeah, yeah, right. Three, two, one. What have you been up to, Zach? <laughs> Alex, you are rubbish. <laughs> oh, okay, you're all, you're all rubbish at that, but I'll just yeah, go yeah. and jump in. So I'm in Seattle, which has been uh, basically ground zero for the coronavirus in the United States. Um, we had the first coronavirus death uh in the united states so we um we got shut down pretty quickly as a city which has been a lot of yeah weird times definitely would rather have a giant monster attack than a uh virus I so so are you safe do you have toilet paper i you know i am safe i am stocked yeah there's, there's a lot of lunacy lunacy going on but fortunately not where i live so everything's everything's been fine it's just you know um I also work in the comic book industry, which has been hit really hard. So several of my, you know, projects have been canceled and things like that. It's just, you know, it's a bummer. But uh, my my kaiju heartbreak, which is the saddest thing of all, is I bought the Criterion Godzilla collection, of course, only to find out that the Blu-rays will not play on my multi-region player. Oh. They have created, yeah, they've created some, every, every Criterion Blu-ray has played before this, but apparently they've created a new software to evade my multi-region player. And so I have a bunch of DVDs that I can't watch, which has been a little heartbreaking. Um, or Blu-rays that I can't watch. But I did pop in an old favorite that does play on my multi-region player, and I watched uh, Daimajin recently, oh, which cool. is still one of my uh, yeah one of my absolute favorite kaiju films, and just films. I love Daimajin. So for those of us mm-hmm. who don't know what Daimajin is, basically a angry story. Well, you're a kaiju podcast. Oh no 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 no! I'm saying this for listeners. Okay, for listeners who might not know what Daimajin is, he is an okay. angry samurai-esque golem. That just I was gonna say we're we're an inclusive community and we try to avoid the idea that people might kind of come in and go oh well I don't know about that and they're not talking about it or explaining it. No, and... that's a fair that's a fair point. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, no gatekeeping. You know, Godzilla yes. destroys gates. He does. He does. Yeah. No, Daimajin, If you've never seen it, is one of my absolute favorites. It's basically um, a cross of the samurai Shambara genre with um with the tokusatsu you know uh kaiju drama so you have uh, a really japanese well so i don't know japan has a lot of what they call ujigami which are these sort of like household gods right so every town has a local god that you pray to and it's the little god that you know watches over the town and it has all these little festivals and all this other stuff so in daimajin there's this god the majin which just basically means um magic person 
um, Dai meaning great. So that's the that's the name of it, you know, the great god. And the evil samurai lord is coming in and slaughtering the townspeople and ah, everyone's dying and it's all a really bad situation. And so, you know, one of the the women of the town goes up um, and prays to to the god, which is this lovely little stone statue, you know, prays, oh, in our time of need, rise, Daimajin, come and save us, you know. And of course, because it's a great movie, Daimajin does rise in the time of need. Um, but now he's a giant, you know, 100 foot tall, very, very angry god who then reigns, you know, comes and reigns holy terror upon the samurai lord. And it's great. I love it. It's awesome. Samurai and giant monsters going to samurai and giant monsters um dark horse had a rather awesome godzilla run back in the day and I, i'd say they did they yeah that was their actually that was their very first manga that they ever translated into english was godzilla yeah that's awesome um but uh what i'm specifically calling to memory is the there was i think it was a one it was a color special that they did but there was kind of like mm -hmm. a goblin samurai kind of dude and he was on this island and it was very similar so basically many centuries ago um there was this we'll call it an oni a demon in samurai garb and um it kept coming and they kept killing it because it's troublemaker and it's what you did but every time they defeated it it came back and it was bigger so it got to the point where this thing was like 40 50 feet tall and that was an issue so they couldn't beat it but what a monk did is he came and he let the thing eat him or kill him or whatever and then his spirit fought that thing's spirit so that basically like it couldn't move and it just petrified into stone so they couldn't kill it but so long as his spirit was fighting it in like the spirit world it stayed put uh-huh so fast nice. so fast forward hundreds of years mm-hmm g-force is uh trying to you know like stave off the godzilla threat and godzilla's coming to this island they're trying to evacuate it and lo and behold you know like the local populace is like oh no nah. we got just the answer for this buddy but they're like no 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 no, 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 no. we're not we're not playing that game we're going to evacuate you and make sure that you are safe but one monk goes there and um i think that he like he's shouting at it and everything but godzilla steps on him before you know, he can finish the message. So that kicks off. He dies. His spirit then takes the place of the monk before, but he's not fighting this thing's spirit to a standstill. He wants it to do its thing. So I think that it's like Godzilla destroys him. Like, I don't know. It's like the space of like 20 minutes. Like the thing just can't even reform before Godzilla destroys it again. He's just that annoyed with this thing. So what G-Force does is like they distract Godzilla for like, I don't know, the two, three minutes that it takes for this thing to reform from the island itself. And then basically, like, I think it's got like a big hammer or something like that. and just clocks him on the side of the head and tackles him off a cliff and whatever. And so the island is saved. And you see it like at the end of the comic, like it's reformed, like underwater, just off the island. But they're like, yeah, may like so-and-so, the guy that gave his life, rest in peace. And then you're like the one island person, islander is like, he ain't resting in peace. He has to keep that thing stationary. But it was really cool. And like the Daimajin kind of like has that. I mean, there's this good link, right? Good link. <laughs> Comics, yeah, good link. Daimajin oh, yeah. and Godzilla. Hey! <laughs> but it is time for us to take our first break. When we return, let's delve into your work, Zach, because we're all keen to hear about it. 
Sure. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Matt Frank. I'm a comic book artist and illustrator and a concept artist and a writer. Wear a lot of hats. Mostly relating to various Japanese-flavored giant monster properties, such as Godzilla, Gamera, Ultraman, Red Man, the Kaiju Hunter, a little bit of Power Rangers. I've, you know, been around a little bit, so I am here to tell you that I am going to be at the UK Kaiju Con. That's specifically UK Kaiju Con 2020. That's right, the second one. And you guys should come out. It's going to be on August 8th at the Penta Hotel in Birmingham. Ah, yes, jolly old England. I'm sorry for that, but I'm not sorry that I'm going to get to see all you guys. Tickets are still available on Eventbrite, but they're selling quick, so you better go ahead and get in on that goodness. Oh, man, can't wait, can't wait. It's going to be a grand old time. <sighs> going to eat some fish and chips. Hello, and welcome back to Kaiju Curry House. We are joined tonight with Paul, Alex, and special guest Zach, who is going to start taking us through his illustrious career. Zach, as I understand it, you are a man of many talents. Can you go into what you've done? Yeah, definitely. So um, I'll give you sort of the brief rundown of my career and why I'm even here on the, you know, on the program right now. So uh, you guys asked me earlier how old I was. I'm 47. And, you know, if you throw back many, many years into the past, I was about 33 years old. And I was sitting at my desk as an employee at Amazon.com and kind of really hating my life. Uh, making good money, good promising future, you know, all this other stuff, but just completely unhappy with being a corporate drone and just sort of like, wow, is this it? Is this really all I get out of life? And in a bold throw, I decided to just quit my corporate job, leave behind Amazon, jump on a plane and move to Japan where I'd always been interested in, but never actually been to. And so I thought that it just seemed like the smart move to do. Uh, I went, I moved to Japan originally, you know, and I didn't speak Japanese, I'd studied really just kind of, you know, I studied in college and I studied in high school, but I knew as much Japanese as anyone who does, you know, one or two years of study, which is basically I could say my name and ask how you're doing really, really badly. And that was about it. But I went to Japan, for, you know, intending to stay a year. And I ended up staying there for more like eight years because I just I got there and, you know, fell in love with it made a really dedicated attempt to study the language and just discovered all of this cool stuff that I was not aware of. And it was really interesting to get to Japan and understand that, um, you know, what, what gets exported is not really, you know, it's, it's the sellable exportable bits that we get to see out in the West, you know, like the single most popular, you know, if you even ask a Japanese person, you know, like, what are the really huge, you know, cartoons? Because that's something almost everyone knows. It's like, oh, everyone knows anime, right? And if you go to Japan and you ask a Japanese people to name, like, the three most famous anime of all time, they're most likely going to name Sazai-san, Gegege no Kitaro, and Doraemon, which have almost no purchase outside of Japan, right? They have, um, but in Japan, they're absolutely foundational. You can't go anywhere without seeing them. They're far more foundational than things like Naruto and One Piece and, you know, Bleach and the ones that are that are popular overseas. And so when I was there, I was just like, you know, I just deep dived into so much of the culture. And also when I was there, it was amazing to just like, there was just so much of this sort of like 
fantasy and ghost land, you know, that, that I don't, and I'd always loved that kind of stuff. You know, like I'd always been like, you know, I was the kind of guy who watched TV shows like in search of, and, you know, wanted to read about Bigfoot. And when I lived over in Scotland, you know, of course I went up to Ness and had to go Nessie hunting, you know, I mean, cause of course I did. Um, and I actually, uh, it was one of my proudest moments. I actually had a, like a little Nessie sighting that I recorded when I was up there and it was awesome fun, you know? And so I toured all around Scotland, like going to, to Doomvegan Castle and the Ferry Bridge and, you know, because that's just like totally my jams and always has been. And when I went to, to Japan, it was like, it was like the mother load, right? Like I've never seen a country that lives so completely with its folklore, um, you know, you know, I like I wrote in some of my books, like say Japan is the most haunted country on earth. And I, I believe that. I mean, they just live with their ghosts in an amazing way. Like, for example, my birthday is on August 15th. And that's almost of no significance, except for in Japan, that happens to be the festival of Obon, which is the um, basically the festival of the dead. And so it's when all of the spirits and everything come back to Japan and they have like this massive, like the entire country shuts down. It's their big holiday. So Japan's hugest, most important holiday is the Festival of the Dead. And this place that I lived next to me, um, Nara Park, they would light the 10,000 lanterns of Nara Park because lights are supposed to guide the dead home and you would go wander through this park and it was beautiful, but it was also with the understanding that basically you were wandering through a land of ghosts, you know, they were swimming throughout you and, you know, they were there and it was all very real. You know, that's one of the other parts about Japan that I really loved is that all of this folklore is it wasn't considered to be academic per se, you know, it was, it was real and it was fully believed in and it was just, amazing to experience and i wanted to know so much about it but there was nothing about it in english you know um so i knew that learning japanese was going to be the key to unlock these sort of like hidden gates and doors and so i you know just buried myself in the japanese language study uh, i ended up getting my masters in japanese which through a strange twist i actually got my masters from the university of sheffield but I've never been to Sheffield because I did the entire program out of a satellite college they had in Hiroshima. So I did all my studying in Hiroshima, um, but got, got, got my master's degree there. And from, you know, I did a bunch of translation of these ancient ghost stories as well, because I was just so enamored of them. And I wrote my master's thesis on Yurei, on Japanese ghosts. Uh, and always with kind of the idea that, you know, I just found it so interesting. I thought, well, maybe other people would be interested in it too. So I was like, well, maybe I'll turn this into a book, you know, cause I think that would be pretty cool. Um, just one of those things, you know, like that you do, it's like, Oh, I'll just write a book. That'll be easy. Not realizing quite how hard the process would be. But eventually I did move back to the state. It's a new year, which means new reasons to stop by QT, like drinks to wash out the taste of last year. I need more. And fresh snackles worth breaking a resolution. Pizza has tomatoes, so technically it's a salad. Want to binge a new show? We've got plenty to snack along with it, like our new cheesy mac and cheese. Wow, it's like my wife's, but even cheddar up top. This is the time for new beginnings, and it starts at Quick Trip. QT, more than a gas station. Whatever you're funny, Peacock's got it exclusively. Bears beats The Office on Peacock. Stream every moment from Dunder Mifflin and explore bonus extras and exclusives. Plus, if you're looking for more classic hits, you can stream every episode of Parks and Recreation, Two and a Half Men, and every season of SNL. In the mood for something brand new? 
Check out Peacock's original comedies, The Amber Ruffin Show, and Saved by the Bell. Whether you're craving a new binge or familiar fave, you can find tons of comedy hits on Peacock. Get started for free at PeacockTV.com. Um, and went about this process of trying to turn my master's degree into a book. Uh, contacted some publishers, you know, and like, hey, what do you guys think? I have all this information. You know, I just wrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it over again. And one of the editors... Uh, a guy named Greg Starr that I talked to, he gave me this advice. He's like, well, here's one of the things is that when you sell a book, it's really hard to just sell a book. It's much easier to sell a person that wrote a book than it is to sell a book. So he's like, what I recommend you do is create a website and kind of get yourself known. You know, if people know who you are, then it'll be much easier to sell a book from Zach Davison, creator of popular website, blah, blah, blah that it will be just to sell a book. So that's how I created the website, yakumonogotari.com, which is, you know, like you said, where you found me and a lot of people did. So I created yakumonogotari.com um, as a way to, to sort of publish and generate a profile for myself. Because one of the more interesting things about the modern world, you know, people always ask me, it's like, oh, you're well known as like this Japanese folklore expert. How do you do it? I'm like, it's really easy. You create a website where you list yourself as, Japanese folklore expert, Zach Davison. And once you create the website, people go there, you know, it's like sort of a fake it till you make it situation, but it did, it worked really well. Um, the website got really popular. Uh, I sold the book, uh, the book came out and it was, you know, successful and also opened up other doors to other things. Um, one of the things it opened up to was manga translation, which is another career that I have. And that also, began in Japan because I just became completely enamored of this artist, Mizugi Shigeru, whose work was wholly unknown outside of Japan. But inside Japan, he was a foundational figure. Like I, I try to tell people that he is as important to Japan as like Walt Disney is to American culture, you know, just like absolutely foundational, you know, just like, like you, his influence is so vast that it's, impossible to find anything that he hasn't touched you know all, all of modern automation godzilla kaiju all of that comes from the brain of mizugi shigeru right i mean mizugi shigeru for example he he created the very first giant robot versus giant monster comic he was the originator of that idea you know he made the first one and now we have movies like pacific rim and you know all these other things that that that's become a trope in and of itself with few people realizing that if you draw the trail back, it goes to one specific person and that one specific person is Mizugishigeru. So I really wanted to translate his works. And I just like, I knocked on a lot of doors for a lot of years to people saying like, Oh, we gotta, we gotta do this guy. You know, he's so amazing. He's just like, he's an actual genius of comics. Um, and it was mostly no, because he's so hard to sell, right? He's not one guy who does one thing. He's just, he's so multifaceted. And I remember talking to one company and they're like, the problem with Mizugi Shigeru is that you don't know what shelf to file his works on because he doesn't go on the horror shelf. He doesn't go on this shelf, right? He goes only on the Mizugi Shigeru shelf. And there is no shelf for that in English. There is in Japan. There's a whole library for it. But we don't know him, and that's where he has to go, um, which is true. Uh, there was the term that I finally learned about Mizugi Shigeru, and I love it because it defines what he is, but it's a term called suis generis, which is an artist who defines his own genre. Um, he is someone wholly unique, and he works 
alone in his own genre and there's no one like him and no one ever will be like him. But eventually I did find a company that wanted to publish some of his works and they were interested in his historical fiction because along with his horror stuff and things like that, he also was a veteran who fought in World War II and lost his arm fighting on the island of Rabul. And they were like, that is a sales point. That's a way we can do this. We can sell Mizugi Shigeru. Like you can sell World War II veteran who wrote his own biography in comic book form. Like that is a sellable thing. You can put that in a blur. It's, it's a hook line. Push that it? out there. And so I was, yeah, it is. It's a hook line. And that's what we needed. And it was really weird for me. It's like to, to start with the historical stuff because it's not what he's best known for, right? He's best known for, for Kitaro and, and some of the other stuff. So, but it was a hook line and it worked. Um, and it was, it was good. So we did, um, Showa History of Japan, which is this giant four volume, massive set about his own life. Um, and it's, it's just brilliant. I, I think Showa, Showa History of Japan is what I always consider like, I'll say it's like, it's my contribution to like world literature versus some of this other stuff I've done. I have no doubt that long after I'm dead, people are still going to be reading it because it's just an absolute brilliant work. And it's, you know, it's one like, a few Eisner Awards, which are sort of the comic book equivalent of like the uh, the Oscars or the BAFTA or things like that, you know, wow. whatever the major award is. So it's one one those, um, and we got that out. And then once we had that out, we were able to that opened the door to doing some of his other stuff, like to doing Kitado, which we did seven volumes of, um, and it also opened the door for me to work in other manga translations. So I've done, you know quite a bit of manga translation now. Um, I've continued writing books as well on Japanese folklore. So I wrote a book on Japanese cats called Kaibyo, the Supernatural Cats of Japan. I wrote a fiction book called Yokai Stories. Um, and, you know, and I do, you know, I do a lot of, uh, it's, it's a weird little niche that I've built for myself because a lot of that has opened doors to also doing, you know, I've worked with a few museums I was just down in Australia last year doing a lecture series because they had a Japan supernatural exhibit. Um, I contributed to some work at like uh, the Rotterdam Museum as well. Um, I just, I've become like this guy who knows a lot about supernatural Japan as a profession, which is a weird profession. I didn't think it didn't really exist, I think, until I made it, but there it is. It's quite a small community because I, I heard about your name through Matthew Meyer because because when I started reading his books um who we then got sorry I got to interview mm -hmm. um just one to one um for episode 12 quite far back now he was chatting away mm -hmm. and one of the first authors that he mentioned was yourself and similarly on his website he was promoting when uh, Yurei the Japanese ghost came out which I don't I don't think is that long ago is it is it like within the last 5 to 10 years yeah, yeah, within that, yeah. And I actually, I edit all of his books as well. So, so it is... It... Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. yeah, and it is a small community. It's, it's, it's a small community, especially... It's gotten bigger. You know, like when it first started, it was basically Matt Alt, um, there was me, Matthew Meyer, and then there are what yeah. I call the academics, like uh, Michael Dylan Foster and Norico Reader. Um, and they write the, like, they write the real sort of, like, high academic stuff that is just like i love it but yes. it can be a swamp to get through and then matt out writes the real pop culture focused stuff and you know matt meyer is an artist and so that's his primary focus and then i always think that i kind of like i i drive the middle road in between the poppy stuff of like matt out 
and then the high academic stuff of like uh, Michael Dolan. You know, so I'm just sort of like I'm in between there. That was my sort of niche. That Would I it be possible carved. for you to um, okay. go into exactly what Uray, what Yokai are, just for our listeners to kind of break it down into sort of more sizable chunks? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and it's so I always warn people. One of the fun parts of research into Japanese folklore is the understanding that no one will ever agree with each other, and I think that that's one of the best parts. Like Yokai Gaku, Yokaiology as they say, as they call it, started in the Meiji period with two guys, um, Yanaguchi Kunio and uh, Inyo Inyo, um, and they both wrote books about what yokai meant, and both of their books violently disagreed with each other. And that has been the fight ever since then that has lasted. It's like, you know, it's, to a lot of us that study this stuff, we're like, to, to us, it's, it's part of the game, right? I mean, and we can go into that too with like kaiju, like trying to define exactly what is a kaiju is like trying to grasp water and yeah, so many... We, we uh, went grossly over yeah. <laughs> the, the time limit for one episode on what makes a kaiju movie. And we, 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 we grossly yeah. <laughs> disagree with each other, but just kind of trying to pin down things. And we've kind of agreed that certain monsters are so kind of... Um, I suppose, important to themselves that they become their own genre. For example, a werewolf could be a kaiju, but it's so kind of defined that it ends up being, well, they, they're werewolf movies. And zombies, we've agreed that aren't kaiju because they, yes. they were previously humans. But then does that mean that something that was originally human ca- cannot, if it becomes a demon, it's not uh, it's not a, a kaiju? Well, d- does that mean that demons are not kaiju? It, it becomes kind of... Um, it becomes very gr- kind of gray and muggy. <laughs> right? I don't, I don't like it. No, and like what I always tell people, like my my thing that I try to explain to people is that it's folklore, it's not science, right? This is this is not, and the 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 definitions, like one of the words for another word for yokai is obakemono, which translates literally as changing thing. And I think that's one of the best definitions you can use for this is understand it, that they are malleable, that they don't fit in nice little categories that. You can't go through and like do like, you know, kingdom, phyla, you know, genius of these sort of monsters. It doesn't work that way. Um, but to give you the biggest picture, and this is my big picture. And again, another yokai person will probably give you an entirely different definition of these terms. So these are my definitions as I use them, which is that you have yokai generally means um, like supernatural. And yokai in, in Japan and in Japanese folklore it doesn't necessarily have to be a creature. Like you can have a yokai wind or you can have like a yokai wave or you can have basically anything that is unexplainable falls under the giant umbrella term of yokai. Mm. It is the unknown. You know, basically it is what it is what lives in the shadows and lives in the corners. And it's all that part of human existence that we don't know what it is. So whether it's from outer space or whether it's the depths of the ocean, you know, anytime you look at something and it's mysterious and you don't know it, that is yokai. Um, underneath yokai, you have different, like, so then there's like different flavors of yokai, right? You have like henge. Henge are basically shapeshifters. There's something that was once something and is now something different, right? So like, like Kaibyo, which are the supernatural cats, follows Henge, because they were once normal, regular cats, and then through something happened, they became supernatural, which zombies are the same way, right? Like you said, they were once human, and now they're not. Now they're something supernatural. So those are the shapeshifters, the Henge, the transformers. Then you have um, the Kaiju, 
which are the basically just means strange beasts, right? And so kaiju generally are your monsters. Those are things that were never anything else, right? They were always like kappa were always kappa. There was another time they were in, they were not anything else, okay. you know. Um, yeah, same you know same thing with like with like Godzilla, right? He was never anything else than Godzilla. Um, you have then you have what they call choshizen, which means supernature. And those are all the yokai types that are like, like like a tree or a mysterious rock or your rain of toads or any of those weird things about nature that are just kind of off a little bit. They don't necessarily have intelligence. There's no motive force behind them. There's just some odd bit of nature. And then the fourth sort of flavor of yokai are the yure, which are the ghosts. Um, so those are basically your, your dead spirits. And they get their own special category because they're so important in Japan. Can I stop you there? For, well, you have stopped. I, I was going to say, because again, going back to the point about things can get um, muggied up so easily. When you say about how kaiju, there were monsters and Godzilla was always a monster. It's never been anything other than that. Because there's been so many different flavors and so many different takes, there have been movies where, mm-hmm. for example, in the High Sai era, Godzilla was previously a Godzillasaurus. He was just a dinosaur. So like... Uh, I'm not oh, saying that yeah. to kind of pick yeah. apart and go, ah, you're wrong. But it's more that it, it's it's so open to di- to different takes, and that's why it becomes oh, yeah. so confusing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not my preferred Godzilla, I have to say. So. Okay. Um, there's a question. Yeah. There we go. Jumping on that. What's the preferred one? Uh, I really, I mean, I really love the Showa Godzilla. Like to me, the first Godzilla movie is the greatest Godzilla movie ever made. Like I love. Godzilla as as a force of nature as something like like a typhoon coming in off the shore um, that you can't really do anything about it's just like this just this thing that happens to you and you it crashes over you and it happens and all you hope is that it just doesn't kill that many people before it eventually goes away so that's kind of like the Godzilla I love something that's just so far beyond comprehension you know this this manifestation of destructive nature and it's not you know it's not a godzilla you're going to see very in that vein what do you think of hideaki anno's uh, shin godzilla because because i loved it i thought it was great category as something that you cannot kind of avoid and just it will attack and it will destroy kind of it's 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 a disaster movie as much as it is kind of a godzilla movie it is it is which is you know what i love and like I love, um, like in the first Godzilla, and this is also the a constant debate is is Godzilla a yokai, right? Like everyone wants to fight that battle. Um, to me, Godzilla is firmly a yokai. He is, in fact, actually called a yokai in the first film in the Japanese track. Oh, so yeah, I, I firmly believe that you know, that Godzilla is a yokai. I know other people that don't like like Matt Alt tends to believe that, or his his way of looking at it is that anything that was a commercial creation is not folklore. Um, whereas I tend to disagree with that a little bit because, you know, we go into things like zombies, you know, I mean, that's fair, was very much a commercial creation, you know, um, as we, as we currently know zombies, because of course they have almost nothing to do with their original folkloric roots or, or vampires are also another great example of something that was, that was a commercial creation. You know, if you look at, almost everything and werewolves actually as well like all of those monsters um they have they have roots in commerce not in the collective 
uh, I don't know, collective fear or, or consciousness. Like, you know, so many things that you know about werewolves. Like, like I said, I, I do these panels and like one of my favorite things to throw out there is like, you know, what happens to vampires when they go into the sunlight, right? Everyone knows they sparkle like pretty green <laughs> diamonds. You know, that is... <laughs> So, and of course, people get upset about that. They're like, no, they burst the flame. I'm like, is that folkloric? You know, what are the roots of, of vampires bursting into flame? And the truth is, is that comes from the movie Nosferatu. And it comes explicitly because the director did not have enough money to film the ending. He ran out of cash. And so he had to come up with a quick way to film the, the ending because if and people are like, oh, well, what about the book Dracula? And I'm like, well, so you've never actually read the book Dracula then, because Dracula is running around the sunlight, sunlight all the time in the book Dracula. He, sunlight does not bother him in the slightest. But the ending of the book Drac of the book of Dracula is this huge, expensive scene where all of you know Lucy's three fiancés, her three suitors, including the Texan with his giant Bowie knife, you know, storm Castle Dracula in this huge, exciting, expensive, you know, scene that would have been really expensive to film. And with Nosferatu, he's just like, I just don't have the money to film this. How am I going to end this? And so he came out, well, what if at the last moment, at the last moment, uh, Mina pulls open the, the curtain and the sunlight destroys him? Like, cheap, effective, done. And that's how we get it. That's entirely how we get vampires being destroyed or not being able to go out in the sunlight. It's a commercial creation. But it has lived beyond its commercial creation to become part of the folklore. So I don't personally think that commercial origins really, you could say that, oh, because it has a commercial origin, it can't be considered folklore. Well, there becomes a point when there's no longer uh -huh. a commercial point to it, that it's so kind of ingrained into culture that it's just kind of, it's accepted. Yeah. Yeah, and the commercial... Um, creation, you know, like most people, it's it's so gone. It, it's only known by researchers at this point. You know, now the the initial, yeah, the commercial part has become the collective consciousness of people of vampires. You know, and it's the same thing with werewolves. Like like people talk about werewolves being shot by silver bull silver bullets. Do you, do you guys know why that that is? No. <laughs> okay, so that one came around because the first director of the first Wolfman film was a huge fan of the Lone Ranger radio play. Uh, radio That's series. legit. That's um, awesome. Yeah. And so he thought that the whole silver bullet thing was pretty awesome and basically stole it. So one, one man's preference has had a massive legacy and basically shaped an entire kind of opinion. Yep. Well, they're, they're bad against silver in general. That was always part of the vibe, I think. But, but it, it was, but even even then, it wasn't really a big thing, right? Like even that, there's they have what they call fake lore um, and back lore, which is basically people attempting to sort of like layer in excuses <laughs> onto why you know blah 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 this happened. I mean, because they weren't. I mean, people will say, well, silver was you know like was something against you know supernatural creatures. I'm like, actually, it wasn't. If you look back in the real folklore, what supernatural creatures hated was iron. Yeah. Iron is what Legit. you use to fight fairies. You don't use silver. Can we just you know? can we just give props to Hellboy, by the way, because they get it right in that movie? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, Hellboy is one of my absolute favorite things on earth, so I could talk about that forever as well. Oh man, um, what did you think of the recent Hellboy? I thought it was great fun. Um, I really liked it, but I also understand why people didn't like it. But for me, I, I also had 
I knew what it was going into it. It was like someone's like, it's like Grindhouse Hellboy. And I'm like, good. I'm there for that. You know? Yeah. It is fun. Um, it's I so think fun. It's, it's fun. Yeah. yeah. It's super fun. Yeah. It's, you know, it's gory, it's over the top, and it's a blast. And I think that's fine. Hellboy doesn't have to be all serious and smug and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I think there's room for a fun interpretation of Hellboy. And I think that there is a lot of room for platforming more people that don't just say, oh, I hate it, it's the worst film ever made. <laughs> because I think, I think that the internet is full of people basically saying X, Y, Z is the worst thing ever, and if you disagree with me, then you're, then you're a fake fan, which... I, yeah. I, I, cannot, I cannot be chewed with. It's tedious. I've not seen the new Hellboy, so I have no idea what it's like. Oh, um, it's, it's super fun. Isn't it on Netflix yeah. now? It's on Netflix, yeah. yeah, it, yeah, yeah yes, I imagine, yeah. sadly, it was quite cheap for them to buy it. So, yeah, I've got, <laughs> I've got no excuse. Yeah, and, and, I'm the, you know, and I'm the same way. Like, I'm pretty easygoing. I think, you know, there was a time in my life where I had a real stick up my ass as, like, a purist that wanted mm-hmm. to things to be the way they were. And like, this was the version that was, and then like, because I started working, you know, the more I started working on the creative side, I guess re- working as a creative rather than just someone as a re- receiver. I don't know. I'm not sure what the right term. Once was, you have to start generating content as a team, yeah, you become, it's yeah, it's hard generating. Yeah, you're like, Oh yeah, this is a lot harder to do and please everybody. And also come up with a new direction. Hmm. <laughs> well, not only that, but you're just like, hey, why not let these, why not do more creative takes on things? You know, why not go to crazy town with some of these ideas? You know, if it's fun, if it works, it's fine. It was ultimately like I realized it's like there's so much other stuff out there. It's like, like all this stuff doesn't need to be put in a little box, you know, preserved in a little glass case to be admired forever. And that's one of the things I talk about with folklore, too, is it made me realize there's like there's people like who want to do that with folklore and like yokai, you know, and. They want to preserve it as it was during the Edo period and never allow it to become anything else. And the instant something starts, does that, the instant it's preserved, labeled, named, it stops to lose its meaning. It no longer is folklore, right? It no longer resonates with culture. And then it dies. Like by naming and preserving something is exactly how you kill it. You have to allow it to become something new or it will never persist into the future. It has to resonate with modern audiences yeah i had that a couple of years back with matthew meyer because on his patreon i kind of uh, put forward an idea for a commission and i was looking through a book of um sort of i guess um scrolls of yokai through time in this Mm -hmm. museum and one that i saw was this little uh, green goofy elephant style with like a snout yokai and it's just squirting water mm-hmm. and it just basically said chiofuki and i thought great what does that do what is it what's its backstory and then i messaged matthew and was like yeah i want that done he was like all right no problem and then he did a commission for me and it mm-hmm. came in the post and i'm like so what does it do he's like i've got a clue mate I'm like, what do you mean <laughs> he's like well i don't, I don't flipping no it's a little dude squirting water out of the ocean well but what was the plan alex maybe someone just did a doodle on toilet paper and we've got excited and gone no no it's got a backstory it's got stats it can do this that no, no maybe not that, maybe that, no one gives a shit yeah know? that's exactly true and that was so that was the evolution of how of how yokai existed like if we wanted to go into to that area i could tell you a little bit about it so basically how it worked is that during the um during the Kamakura period, there was a lot of, you know, storytelling about yokai. And at the time, 
all yokai and all supernatural creatures in Japan were considered to be invisible. That was a foundation of Japanese culture, right? Gods and monsters did not have bodies. They were spiritual energy. The closest thing I can think of it as is think of the force, right? That is what Japanese supernatural was like. It was the force. There was the light side and there was the dark side. And it's absolutely like Star Wars absolutely pulls that from Japan. And then all of a sudden from China, they had this uh, emissary come over from China. And one of the things that they brought from China was a little statue of the Buddha. And they're like, hey, this is the Buddha. This is the God that we worship. And they're like, what is that? And they're like, it's this. He looks like this. And so that was the first time that Japan had experienced the idea of an incarnate deity, right? Of a mm. deity with body and name. And that was just like transform the culture because they brought more stuff in from china they brought in like these books they're like what is this this is a snake person it's a naga this is a nine-tailed fox um it's a huliling you know and japan was like we like this oh boy do we like this a lot and they just went crazy with it you know so they started creating all and and a lot of it came from artists who would create these big scrolls and they would just do art of monsters, of anything they could think of, but they had no name, they had no story. They were just visual creations of monsters, right? And they started to like borrow from each other. Like if one artist had did a monster, like, you know, it's like, hey, there's a guy with an elephant trunk blowing water. He's like, that's awesome. I'm going to borrow that and you know, not borrow it. I'm going to steal it and put it over here. And so you started seeing this sort of like, you know, mimic replication of monster forms from artists seeing other artists and passing it on or like, oh, I like that. I like this, you know, um, and then but they had no names. They had no stories. And then it took later people to look at these and like say, oh, hey, there's there's, you know, what's his name again? You know, he's popping up. Oh, I've seen him. Uh, I'm going to call him, you know, Chiofuri and like, oh, here he is over here too. blah, blah, blah. And so stories started getting layered on to these artists depictions. It's how memes get shared. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. Just, you know, like, and I know, I like to trivialize it a little bit, but kind mm -hmm. of like, you know, here's a picture. Yeah, it's got an origin, but basically, someone thought, "Hey, this is funny. I'm gonna apply a bit of text to it and share it." And then, before you know it, over so many circulations, that meme gets kind of transformed into something else, and then people merge memes, and you have different layers of them. And like, you think, well, what was the original? Well, someone mm -hmm. basically just thought something looked funny with a word attached to it. And oh yeah, kind of spiraled off from that. But I mean, I'm gonna get vaguely more cultured for a moment thinking about what you were saying with kind of uh artists doing uh you know sort of little scribbles and that that taking off and um, when you look at egyptology people often like can name a couple of set gods so have a go guys paul uh zach name name some egyptian gods for me uh osiris um yeah sobek uh, yeah uh, i mean you've got your big ones horus you've got isis yeah. you know um anubis oh yeah yeah anubis yeah yeah. Um, so one that doesn't regularly get kind of a shout out is Seth, and Seth is, oh, yeah. the, is the god of destruction. Yeah, yeah, good old Seth. Now, what animal is Seth? Snake, as far as I know. No one actually knows. It's been speculated that it could be huh? an aardvark, it could be a donkey, it could be a jackal, or it huh? could be a fennec fox. However... It's not clear enough from the few scribbles that have been done what animal it is. So then Egyptologists went really over the top and said, ah, it was an animal, but because of it being considered to be linked to the god of destruction, it was wiped out and everyone kind of went on a mad rage and started killing it whenever they saw it. Did it oh. ever exist? There's okay. not any kind of fossil evidence for it. Huh. And... 
yes, it might have existed. Yes, it might have become extinct. Or maybe some dude just did a bad scribble of a snake, of an aardvark, and was just a bit shit at drawing. <laughs> you know, and I realize, you know, because this is one of those things where because of the way culture spread, my image is from Robert E. Howard's book, Conan, where Set is the snake god. You yeah. Know? Like, um, and Conan that is, is his awesome. Egypt. Yeah. His Egypt analogy that he uses because he did that a lot with cultures where he'd basically take a culture, you know, Stygia, which is Egypt, you know, that's all he did, but he just renamed a few things. Yeah. And once again, pop culture has informed my idea of what, what that should be. But there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. No. no, no, there isn't. Um, And I think it's perfectly fine. Like it's one of the funnest things for me as a folklorist is to do a lot of research on this stuff. And try and find the sort of like er story or try to go back and find the oldest version of the story I can find. And sometimes it's really interesting. Sometimes it's like just a scribble in somebody's diary or something like that that has then, you know, become this entirely you know, like cultural changing story that everyone knows. But I love how it changes. Like, and that's why, you know, and even to go back to the kaiju stuff, like my favorite Godzilla is always going to be the first one. But that doesn't mean that I don't enjoy almost every single incarnation that has ever come out. Like, there's very hmm. few that I'll watch where I'm like, well, that, you know, that's shit because that's not Godzilla or, you know, something. Well, I, that's yeah. not true. Um, there is. Godzilla versus Megalom. <laughs> oh, oh, go on. What it. No, no, I, I, go on. I, I can't. I can't watch the American, the American one. It's just, yeah. And um, what, the, 98 or the recent? I haven't watched. So I didn't watch so the, the first one was so bad and then they came out with another new one and i just didn't like the godzilla character design so i actually haven't seen it yet but i did see godzilla king of monsters and i just thought that was amazing i loved it so much it was everything i wanted out of a godzilla film so Hmm. that one i adored oh good let's take our second break and return for our final part and i was thinking zach can you read us a Yurei ghost story, Ooh. if you have any. I'm putting sure. you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, yeah c- can we do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Call one eight 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 Farmers to switch, and you could save an average of four hundred and seventy dollars on your auto insurance. That's a lot of money in just a few minutes. With savings like that, you could be lounging on an impractical amount of ornate and overpriced throw pillows you bought for your couch. But you won't, because you're better with money than that. That's why you're calling us in the first place. Call 1-888-FARMERS to get a quote today. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Based on average nationwide annual savings survey data, July to December 2020. Underwritten by Farmers Trucker Fire Insurance. Exchanges are affiliate. Products not available in every state. Here's three great reasons to get the new Samsung Galaxy S21 5G at T-Mobile. One, it's free for both current and new customers when you trade in an eligible device. Two, T-Mobile's the leader in 5G coverage. So, three, you can unleash 5G speeds in more places with your new phone. Get the new Galaxy S21 free at T-Mobile, the leader in 5G coverage. Phone via 24 monthly bill credits plus tax. If you cancel credit, stop and balance on required finance agreement may be due. Contact us. Qualifying credit and consumer plan required. See details at tmobile.com. Recently on the Heroes Podcast Network, Echo Station. Well, what's the main think... what's the main planet that Endor, the forest moon of Endor? It's a moon. So it's there's a major planet obviously that it Is the forest moon of Endor is Endor the actual planet then? See, th- isn't that confusing? Yes. Is it the forest moon of the planet Indoor, or is it the forest moon called Indoor? Screen heroes. If the MCU gets that, then I really think 
that Space Jam needs to be part of the DCEU. Yes! Okay, because... And then they have a big Marvel versus DC <laughs> crossover where Air Bud takes on Space Jam. Man, we should write for these companies. <laughs> That's what it comes, it's Air Bud versus Bugs Bunny. That's, That's what it's right. all come down to. One-on-one. Yes, done. All right. And then, like, at the end, it's Galactus versus LeBron James. And oh, Squirrel Girl wins. <laughs> Red shirts and runabouts. Something we've talked about before, and other people have, but there's, there's so much of real-life history involved with Star Trek. From Gene Roddenberry's days, his time in the military as, as on, on a bomber pilot, as a bomber crewman, you know, James Doohan serving, all these people and all these real-life events that have impacted things. That's very realistic of political and military leaders kind of resigning in protest at a decision they can't control. Subscribe today at heroespodcast.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, Podcast Addict, and more. Welcome back to Kaiju Curry House. This is Zach Davison, and we are about to have Yurei's story time. Are we ready? I am ready, ready? to be spooked. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> okay. So, and that's one thing I have to say. So a lot of people will talk about Japanese ghost stories, and they're not all scary, right? Like, the ghosts of Japan play a lot of different roles, and horror is only one of the elements. So people usually ask me, what is my favorite Japanese ghost story? And that's the one that I'm going to read for you here. And I'll just, you know, just to make sure that no one's not too sad about it. It's actually a tale of romance, per se, but less than a horror story, because I'm a an old softy myself. So this is the tale Botan Doro, which is, there's multiple versions of it, but the version here is from the ancient book of Otogi Boko uh, and is translated by me. So every year from July 15th to the 24th, the Obon Festival of the Dead is celebrated. Shelves and homes are decorated as each house prepares for the celebration. Lanterns of every description are made and hung on the eaves of the houses that line the narrow streets of the city. Or sometimes they hang in front of the graves themselves, beckoning the spirits home. These lanterns are decorated with flowers and birds, or sweet and beautiful plants, or with peony flowers. Inside are set candles that burn the whole night through. To see all of the lanterns lit is a sight so splendid that none can look away from it. And then the dancers gather, raising their voices together in harmony to sing the sacred songs. Lanterns and dancers sway together. It is the same all across the country from humble villages to the grand cities. In the fifth year of Tembun, 1536, in Gojo, Kyogoku, there lived a man named Ogiwara Shinojo. His wife had died recently. He still cried tears of longing for her into the sleeves of his kimono, and his chest still burned with yearning. He sat by, him, by himself under his window, lonely, thinking of his departed wife. His grief was unending. This year was especially painful, as for the first time, his wife's name would be entered into the remembrances for the dead. As he heard the Buddha's sutras read for her, he saw children playing outside and thought about the cruelness of life. His friends tried to take him out to cheer him up, but instead Ogiwara returned home alone. He stared into nothingness on his stoop, his mind blank. Why? My beloved wife's face is clear in my mind to comfort me, yet still I am lonely. While staring blindly into space, Ogiwara softly sang to himself and allowed tears to flow freely down his face. Late on the evening of the 15th, the bustle of people going to and fro began to thin. The night grew still and silent. Suddenly, a beautiful woman about 20 years old came walking by, accompanied by a servant girl. 
who looked about 14 or 15 years old. The servant girl was carrying a beautiful lantern adorned with peony flowers. The two came walking by. The woman's eyes were vivid, the color of lotus blossoms, and her body was slender and moved with the grace of a willow tree. Her eyebrows were sharp as a pine needle, and her hair was glamorously adorned. Ogiwara saw her shining in a moonbeam. Is this one of the daughters of heaven, come down to earth to play amongst us mere mortals? Or perhaps the youngest princess of the Dragon King, emerged from her underwater palace? For there is no way someone this beautiful could be human. Ogiwara shuddered with delight at the sight of the beautiful woman. As much as he tried to stop himself, Ogiwara's heart was filled with longing. He stood and followed her. The woman noticed Ogiwara filing in behind her, and he waited for her rejection. Instead, she walked slowly ahead, turning to look over her shoulder. I came out tonight with no appointment, no expectations of a secret meeting. It was only that the moon was beautiful and I wished to admire it. Unexpectedly, it grew late at night, and the path home was deserted and dreary. Will you accompany me on my lonely walk? Hearing this, Ogiwara took a tentative step in her direction. Your way is far, and the night is dark. Surely returning home now would be troublesome. My house is dilapidated and piled with garbage. However, perhaps it would serve as a light in the dark night for you and be enough for you to stop for the night. Ogiwara said this with a joking tone, and the woman smiled in response. I see the warm light leaking out of your windows. You look alone and as lonely as I am. I will take you up on your offer and stay at your inn with pleasure. The human heart feels such sympathy. With this response, Ogiwara was overjoyed. He took her slender hand and led her into his house. He brought out a bottle of sake, and they took turns pouring for each other. The moon sank into the night, and it stretched into a most wonderful evening. He heard the words he desperately wanted to hear. It will be difficult not to change after this, not to forget myself. I want to assume this is the start of something, rather than a brief moment in the moonlight. Ogiwara had been anxious about the future with this woman, he said. We don't know if we will meet again. Do we make the pledge that this is a beginning or an ending? To which the woman immediately replied, If I ask, will you wait for me to come every night and every night again? Why do you look at me with a sad face so full of expectations of disappointment? With that said, joy blossomed in Ogiwara's heart. As they loosed each other's undersashes, he made his first pledge with the woman. They whispered to each other that they would love without change or interruption. Unbidden, dawn broke. Ogiwara said, Where is your house? Unless you vanish into the hollow of a tree like some fairy tale creature. Please tell me. The woman answered, I am descended of the Fujiwara clan, even more so than the Nikaido clan. But it is many years since my household prospered. Indeed, if my household even exists at all anymore, we now barely scrape by in a tiny hovel. My father perished in the Onin Wars. My siblings are all dead and my house has declined. There is only myself remaining and this maid who has been in service to my family for her entire life. We live in the vicinity of Banshu Temple. The shack is far too humble for visitors and it shames me. I become sad just talking about it. She spun her sad tale, all the while being charming and gentle. Lying peacefully, they looked out into the sky. The moon had sunk beyond the mountains and the sky was lined with flat clouds. The lanterns had burned out to just a faint sliver of light. It was dawn. Regretfully, the woman pulled herself from Ogiwara and went home. However, night after night, when it became dark, she came back as promised, staying again until dawn. Ogiwara was happy but perplexed. 
He loved the woman dearly and thought she was wonderful, and she had pledged herself to him with an unchanging heart, but he wondered why he could never see his love by the light of day. Next door to Ogiwara lived a learned old man who knew a lot. Every night he heard a suspicious woman's voice coming from the neighbor Ogiwara's house. Every night he heard singing and laughing and playful gambling. He thought it was strange. One night he snuck over to Ogiwara's house and peeked through the chink in the wall to see what was going on. To his shock, he saw Ogiwara sitting under a dim light. Opposite him was a skeleton. Ogiwara was happily chatting with the skeleton, rubbing its hands and feet. The skull bobbed back and forth as in conversation, and a voice emitted from the swinging mandible. The old man was astounded. He called on Ogiwara as soon as the dawn came. You have had a visitor at your house every night recently. The old man put out his query subtly, but Ogiwara uttered not a sound. The old man continued, You are headed for certain catastrophe. What do you gain by hiding your activities? Last night I peeked at you through your wall, and I saw your visitor, a skeleton. Living things are filled with pure, vital energy and vigor. When they die, this energy becomes corrupt in the heart. The heart of ghosts are impure and wicked. This is why the living must purify themselves after contact with the dead and avoid such taboos and impurities. You are under a gloomy spell. You don't know what it means to sit with this yure. You cannot perceive that you lie with an unclean thing, a foul creature of the underworld. She will drain you of your vigor, sucking your life energy and leaving you a hollow shell. In the end, you will fall desperately ill. No medication or treatment will help you. The consumption will grow in you, and you will be cut down in your youth like green grass. The years that should have been yours taken from you. You'll become a creature of the world over there, rotting under the moss. Is that not sad? Ogiwara felt the first twangs of fear and astonishment. He saw that the old man was telling the truth, and his eyes opened for the first time. The lady said she lived near Banshu Temple. Perhaps we could go there and inquire, he said. Ogiwara set out west from Gojo, traveling the Banri Lane, inquiring along the way if anyone knew of the young woman. He went to a willow tree embankment along the river, but no one had heard of her. As it neared darkness, he reached Banshu Temple, where he rested for a little while. Tucked behind the bathrooms to the north, he noticed an ancient mausoleum. He went to take a look. He saw a coffin with a posthumous Buddhist name of Yoko, daughter of Nikaido clan, Saimainan Masanori, Daiman Sarumi, none of the Utsumatsu temple. When he got a good look, he saw an Otogiboko coffin doll that had been placed inside. The name Asaji was written on the back. Over the coffin was hanging a peony lantern. There was no mistake that this was the woman. Ogiwara's head's hair stood up all over his body as he realized the implications. He left the temple without looking back. His intense passion cooled, and he was terrified to think of the woman making her nightly visit tonight. Normally the dawn had seemed cruel to him, taking away his love, but now it was the nightfall he dreaded. He worried about what he would do when she arrived. He went to his neighbor's house to sleep there and consult. What should I do? Ogiwara sighed dejectedly. The old man answered like this. You must hurry to the East Temple and state your situation. The exorcist Keiko is there, and he is learned in mountain asceticism. Ogiwara went swiftly to the temple and had an interview with Keiko. Keiko said, Your life essence is being drained away by this mysterious spirit. Your heart and spirit are ensorcelled. If this continues for ten more days, you will die. And so it was said. Ogiwara told the truth about everything that had happened up till then. Keiko listened and began writing about protection ambulance he gave to Ogiwara. He hung them about the entrances to his home, and as expected, the woman did not come. After fifty days, Ogiwara returned to the temple, the eastern temple, to thank Keiko, and the two got drunk together. 
In his inebriated state, Ogiwara started to long for his lost love. He decided to drop by Banshu Temple for a short visit and stand before the graves. As he looked inside an instant, she was there. She vented her rage on Ogiwara. You have heartlessly broken the pledge we made to each other and made yourself a great liar. I thought your love was not superficial, that you are a person of death, and I trusted myself with you. From, sunrise to su from sunset to sunrise, I was yours, with a love that could never fade. That was the pledge I made you. But instead of the words of your love, you listened to this Keiko and allowed him to build barricades between us. And more importantly, you built walls around your heart as well. But I am so happy to see you now. Will you not come in and stay at my little house? She took Ogiwara's hand and led him inside. The man who was with Ogiwara saw this and fled in fear. The man ran back to Ogiwara's house and told him every and told everyone what had happened. They were shocked and made their way to Banshu Temple together, but arrived too late. Ogiwara had been drawn into her grave. The cruel bones were wrapped around his dead body. The priest of the temple had the grave transferred to a mountain temple. After a mysterious rumor was heard, on rainy nights when it became cloudy, Ogiwara and the woman could be seen walking hand in hand, a young child guiding their way by the light of the peony lantern. And on those days, the neighbors hide in fear. When Ogiwara's family heard this, they had the Lotus Sutra copied 1,000 times and chanted for him, and they held a memorial service for him and the woman. After that, the two were never seen again. That's the story of Botando. That was beautiful. I really yeah, liked that. <laughs> Yeah, I love that story. Um, it's one of my favorites. It also is interesting in that you can see at the end, one of the things they do with Japanese stories at this time is um, because of the way the laws were written, you had to always tack on a little Buddhist moral at the end. Um, and it kind of reminds me of growing up in the 80s, how you were allowed to watch a cartoon, but at the end, like Mr. T had to appear and give you like one to grow on <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> and so... You have this little story, and then at the very end, when the story should have ended, you get the last little paragraph of copying the Buddhist, you know, the, the Lotus Sutra 1,000 times in order to save their soul. When did you translate that? Uh, I translated that for my master's degree, so that would have been, Jesus, long time ago, more than 20 years now. It's scary every time I think about how mm. long it's been. Yeah. No, oh, thank thank you so much for that. Um, one of the ideas that I had for this episode was to talk about the influence of folklore upon modern cinema. Now, I feel like that that's kind of opening a can of worms that there possibly isn't time for today because we've covered so much content. So, what I was going to suggest, with that in mind, is would it be possible to have you on again sometime and maybe dire direct a focus on kind of folklore in film? Does that yeah. sound okay? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'd love to come back. Awesome. No, well, you'd be, you'd be yeah, most welcome. Good. We normally, tell you what, Joe, you lead on this to wrap <laughs> things up. Well, first I was going to say the next time we have to have you on and you need to read another story because that I, I quite enjoyed that. <laughs> um, Thank you. All right, so close this one off. We're all going to do our, if nothing else, where we recommend something that uh, people listening to the podcast might enjoy. And I suppose in these times where we're all looking at our hobbies and uh, multimedia and entertainment in its various forums, um, it's uh, kind of an important one to do. So 
earlier while we were on a break, um, I uh, dug out one of my books and I really enjoy it because it's about taking a closer look at mythology and legends and folklore and why it's important. And additionally, why it's so interesting um, to delve into the origins of these things and to look at them as they originally were. Like earlier, we found out, like I found out that silver bullets and werewolves, that, that was a Lone Ranger gimmick, things you learn. But um, the book that I'm going to recommend is called The Voyage of the Basset. And it's absolutely beautiful. It's, it's a wonderful, fun book. It's gorgeously and lavishly illustrated. And it's by James C. Christensen. And it's, like I said, it's fantastic. It's fun. And if you like folklore, strange beasts, and wonderful art, it's definitely a book to check out. Paul? Um, well, while we're all kind of stuck inside at the moment, I feel like I should just give a shout out to um, Daikuju TV, or Daikuju TV, uh, quite active on our Facebook group, and they're constantly streaming kaiju films. So if you're stuck on something to do, go to, um, I think they're on Twitch and YouTube and all over the place, but you can find them on Facebook or, or pretty much anywhere if you just Google it, and that should give you something to watch. And also, while we're talking about folklore, while I have mentioned it before, I feel like I should just throw out again um, the book These Are Monsters, which is a book by the um, English Heritage, and it's eight stories based on folklore in the UK um, on sites that are preserved by the English Heritage, so you can read the story and then go visit the site You know, once we're allowed out again. So just to throw out that book, These Are Monsters, um, and that's available on pretty much any, any place that sells books, really. If nothing else, what came up in conversation via a Twitter account linked to you, Zach, I think that you should all make use of the time stuck indoors, everyone, to check out on Netflix the Studio Ghibli film Pompoko, because that recently got a shout out, and that was 1994, Studio Ghibli. It's an acquired taste. If you go into Pompoko expecting Spirit Away, expecting Princess Mononoke, you're going to be disappointed. However, that's not what Pompoko is about. It is genuinely one of my absolute favourite Studio Ghibli films. It is right up there for me with Only Yesterday and Grave of the Fireflies, which are not Barrel of Laughs. They are far more serious. They are far more Japanese. And going back to your point earlier, Zach, they are far less kind of exportable, let's say. I think that um, given how many films there are now from the Studio Ghibli collection, you do have something for everyone. And whilst everyone does love My Neighbor Totoro, and it has something for young children, it's not necessarily what you want every time. I'm sure that screaming fangirls the world over will be disagreeing with me now, because that is what they want. However, for myself, Pompoko is absolutely the go-to Studio Ghibli film. It is rooted very deeply in yokai culture. It has a very bittersweet tone. It's technically appropriate for children. However, it does have some mature elements. It's quite a sad film as well. So I would say that it's a PG and vet it first parents. But it's an incredibly rewarding experience. It is a phenomenal film. What do you think of it, Zach? 
Oh, I think it's a great film. And I think yeah, I loved your point you made, brought up because a lot of people um, make the mistake of hearing Studio Ghibli and thinking that that is uh, Miyazaki. When Miyazaki is actually only one part of Studio Ghibli. Most definitely. Uh, yeah, you know, and the one, the director of Pompoko, Isao Takahata, is also an incredible director in his own right. But his vision is very different from Miyazaki's. You know, the two are yeah. equal genius, equal partners. But Miyazaki is, of the two, the easier one to export it's you know so most definitely yeah and if you look at kind of the the roster of films um takahata has done uh, let's let's get them right so he's done pompoko grave the fireflies only Mm -hmm. yesterday and more recently the tale of princess kaguya and they are very very different films very different oh and my uh, my family the yamadas which again Mm -hmm. lots of people will say oh i like studio ghibli films but i don't like my my family the yamadas that's because it's a very different entity it's not kind of a action adventure in the way Mm -hmm. that spirited away is and it's not kind of a gripping love story like howl's moving castle but it's still really good they're just yeah. very very oh, different yeah. films and yeah. the parade of the monsters in uh pompoko is just something oh, it's, else it's it, one it's, of the best it's yeah, phenomenal so good zach if nothing else yeah uh i will recommend um one of my favorite authors i really like his books there's a guy that named zach davison who has quite a few books that you should check out no way um, tell me about <laughs> definitely i like i i I think my, my main book that I recommend to people, because unfortunately Yure is no longer in print, but I'd love everyone to check out Kaibyo, the Supernatural Cats of Japan, which is all about Japan's lovely cat lore, um, the history and culture that it's all there. Um, I also highly recommend, there's a series that I've been translating recently from this author, Gotonabe, who does what I consider to be the best adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft ever made. And I say this as a lifelong Lovecraft fan and someone who feels that Lovecraft is incredibly difficult to adapt and not Mm. very many people have done it well, but Tanabe has somehow managed to just hit every note right. We recently, I recently just translated his version of At the Mountains of Madness and it is just fantastic. It is just glorious. I highly recommend that. To recommend something I didn't work on, which I think every author should do as well. I love the comic book Monstrous, which also has yokai in it, which is very kaiju-themed by Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda. And I think that everyone who likes monsters would absolutely adore the comic book Monstrous. It is just powerful and spectacular. Well, thank you for those recommendations. And you were saying that uh, Yurei, the Japanese ghost, is now out of print. However, I it noticed is, yeah. on a- I noticed on Amazon that the second edition is coming out in May, which it's um, supposed to. Although, unfortunately, with um, coronavirus yeah. and it being printed in China, um, I cannot guarantee that. So we'll see how well, the future holds. Yeah. Indeed. Well, f- well, fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, we we look forward to that release yeah. coming out. The ebook is av- is available, however. So if people read are on, on e-readers, and it's it's available that way. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. It has been an absolute delight and I do hope that we can sit together in the curry house and talk about (laughs) another topic together. Let's do it again. Exactly. I had a great time. Yeehaw! Kaiju Curry House is part of the Heroes Podcast Network and is produced by UK Kaiju. You can come follow us at UK Kaiju on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
or find us at heroespodcast.com. Consider subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, Google Play, and lots of them other great podcast findy thingies. Have a good one, folks. I forgot to ask you guys why it's Kaiju Curry House. Per se. Ah, wow, this is a fun story. So, um, we were going to originally make it Kaiju Pub. However, uh-huh. we did not think that was British enough. So uh-huh. we went for Curry House. Which is so interesting, because to me, Curry House is just instantly Japanese. I don't think of that as British. Ah. But, like, yeah. the, the most British thing that we can do is basically meet up in a curry house, have <laughs> beers, and shoot the shit over films that we like whilst eating spicy curries. Yeah, I mean, nice. like, that's yeah. kind of what folks do here now, so. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think when I lived in Scotland, curry, and I don't know, it just wasn't that, it wasn't a thing. You know, we mm. would go to the chippies. It's to, so to me, like, that's the most British thing I can do is oh, go to the chippies. Kaiju chip, when, kaiju yeah. chip shop. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, kaiju kaiju chip, chip shop, but only when really drunk and then get all the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chippies are the and, best. And um, have a donut yeah, kebab. Yeah, like a kebab if you don't. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. the kebabs. <laughs> yeah, the kebab. Yep. Yeah. Me, 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 but also you. The Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film. Powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name your price tool from Progressive. Oh, man. That's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry. I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus. The Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool. Only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When it comes to working at GEICO, our best advocates are our employees, like Maxine. But since she is so focused on growing her career, we hired an actor to read her story. At GEICO, I love mentoring the new associates to help them make this a career and not just a job. And with new opportunities and job stability, GEICO has been helping people grow their careers for over 75 years. The only downside, she still hasn't met the gecko. Where are you, fella? Ready to start your career, Kansas City? We're hiring claim sales and service agents. Apply online today at geico.job slash Kansas City.